a world where federal grant funding is everywhere but nowhere, one grant writer must decide how to get the money. Not coming soon to a theater near you. Okay, they've yet to make a movie about grant professionals, which is Hollywood's loss. But there is a way to find the right federal grant funding sources to meet the needs of your organization and the community you serve. To learn more about this, check out the trainings that the D.H. Leonard Consulting Team and their Grant Professionals Association approved trainers have to offer. You can see their full lineup of recorded, on-demand, and upcoming live trainings at dhleonardconsulting.com. And look, if you don't see something that you need in the upcoming list of trainings or you would like a training for your whole team or organization, just reach out and ask about scheduling a custom training. Check them out at dhleonardconsulting.com. Hello there. I'm Kimberly Hayes, they Muga. And I'm Amanda Day. And you're listening to Season 4 of the Fundraising Heyday Podcast. Whoop, whoop. We're doing more in season four to help nonprofits, local governments, and the consultants who serve them raise more money and get more grants by sharing real world experiences and interviews with experts along the way. You may hear a y'all or 12 um, and singing and strange sound effects. <laughs> That's right. And there is more of us to love in season four with episodes dropping every other week all year long. So let's get into it. This podcast is brought to you by Season 4 sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. Don't let grants stress you out. Their team can help you with grant readiness and training, grant research, grant writing, mock review, as well as providing numerous DIY resources, guides, and templates. Did you know that with every Fundraising Heyday episode, we create a coordinating blog post on their website, dhleonardconsulting.com. Check it out today. Okay, y'all. There's, there's the first one. There's going to be more, I promise. Dun, but dun, dun. <laughs> I cannot even begin to tell you how excited I am to interview our two guests today. Like, yeah. It's a thrill. It's a thrill seeker episode for me. I'm not going to lie. And I'm trying to not get too fangirly. Yeah, we we did that when we got confirmation that they were coming on the show. We had our oh, we got moments. There was well. great amounts of squealing that I'm I'm no, I'm actually not embarrassed about it. It's just a big thrill. So it is. Who is it, Amanda? Well, I was first introduced to these two in 2019 when Kimberly and I attended Podcast Movement, which, as you can guess, is a conference for podcasters. Dang. Um, <laughs> I know we learned so much that week. Um, but my favorite was a panel workshop, um, that was focused on talking about how to use Patreon to build your show's following and mm-hmm. build up the success of your show. Um, and so these two were on the panel and after listening to them talk about their podcast, I knew I was going to immediately subscribe and become a fanatic listener, um, cause they were kind and funny and smart and they clearly believed in doing their homework and their research before spouting off about things on their show, which oh. the grant nerd and me, you know, love that. What a crazy idea. Yes. Letting your decisions be fact-based. I don't even know, but what I do know 
is that we were both so impressed with their show that we used it as a model for how we shape our own podcast. And I say used it as a model instead of saying stealing really good ideas. Um, that's just, <laughs> um, and um, in case you missed the teaser from our last episode and have no idea who we are or what we're talking about, first of all, welcome, friends. But um, today we are really thrilled to be talking to Sarah Stewart Holland and Beth Silvers from the show Pant Suit Politics, a podcast for real conversations that help us understand politics, democracy, and the news while still treating each other like thoughtful human beings. Y'all, what, what a, concept. a concept. Yes. <laughs> so host Sarah and Beth are both Kentucky moms and lawyers whose smart meets spiritual political analysis blends hard facts with important social and cultural undercurrents so you don't miss the big picture. I would also like to add that they don't always agree on every topic, and I think that's, to me, the most important thing about listening to this podcast for me is learning how to hold your space and continue the conversation. I think mm -hmm. it's not um, something that is in abundance today, certainly not uh, in the world political scene or the American one. Mm -hmm. So... Um, in addition to all the wonderful work they're doing podcasting, in 2019, they co-authored I Think You're Wrong, But I'm Listening, a guide to grace-filled political conversation. They've also been featured in The Atlantic, The Guardian, MSNBC's Morning Joe, and Parents and L magazines. So, you know, they, they know a thing or two. Maybe. Yeah. I'm excited to have them on the show. Well, welcome to the show, Sarah and Beth. We're so glad to have you join us. Thanks for having us. We're Thanks excited to be here. Thanks for having us. Mm, so we're going to jump right in because, of course, we have tons of questions for y'all today. Um, so one of the earliest episodes of your show that I listened to was way back in October of 2019. You did a topic covering five things you need to know about the federal budget process. And as a grant writer, that was, I have heard so many stories about the grant process, or the federal budget process, rather. And that was the most succinct, easy to understand process of how it works. I think every, every grant writer and fundraiser, and they need to listen to it. Um, so one of the major changes I've noticed since then with the new administration is that earmarks are now back. Um, so is that a trend you guys are seeing and expect to continue through this administration? I would expect it to continue through this administration for sure. And, you know, I, I'm not really sure how much of it came, came from the administration and how much of it came from um, Pelosi and some of the Democratic leadership. And I think there's been mm -hmm. conversation even on the Republican side, because when you remove earmarks, uh, you just remove a lot of the, the energy source. Um, and in such a polarized environment where there's really no political capital to be gained by being bipartisan, you got to have some energy source uh, to grease the wheels a little bit. I'm missing my metaphors here, but um, you have to have something right to to motivate people because they, you know, as much as I think it would be nice to think they went to Congress to always do the right thing. I mean, people have to have incentives. And I think the the earmark when you talk about. Um, sort of the the lions of congressional history, you know, the LBJs, the dudes that all the buildings are named after. I mean, that's mm -hmm. what they were experts at, right, is, is passing out those federal dollars and motivating people to come to the table, motivating people to do hard things. 
um, because the, you know, the basic human psychology is hard enough add on um, political calculations and you, you got to have something. And so, you know, I think that it's a, it's a very limited, um, uh, earmark process, nothing compared to sort of the, the LBJ days, but, um, it's better than nothing. I, ex- I expect that they'll like, now that they've got them back and they feel like it, if they feel like it's helping that they'll be here to stay. Yeah. Well, and I like how you describe that because especially someone who for a long time worked in a very conservative, very Republican local government, um, who they all just looked at earmarks as this horrible, bad thing. Like they just mm-hmm. thought it was awful, um, that there needs to be a more open and fair process. And I, but I think it is a, it still is a process. So I, I like how you describe that. Well, I mean, they call it sausage making for a reason, right? And I think yeah. that like <laughs> the idea that transparency is always good is something it's time to re um, evaluate because I think that, you know, as a, when I was a city commissioner, it's not that, you know, we needed the open meetings law um, to be gone. I think it's really important to to have a public process. But what you see in the public process is that the public that shows up is not always 100% representative. Oh, true. And the, the things that are being said are being manipulated for political purposes, too, from parties like media companies that don't have to live by the same transparency laws you do. And, you know, I just think that the idea that transparency is always good. I mean, there's a lot of interesting studies in political science on what happened when C-SPAN started and that you just had, you know, things slowed down and everybody was having to to weigh like, well, who's what's going to happen if I put this out there? What's the worst actor with the worst motives going to do with this information instead of just dealing with the person in front of you? Now, you're never just dealing with the person in front of you. You're also dealing with everybody who could be watching. Um, and I know that seems antithetical, but I I think that, you know, like I said, there's a lot of really good political science that bears out that observation. Yeah. Well, I think you're true. I, I, like I said, I worked for a city that we had about 65,000 residents. You had the same five people. Yeah, exactly. And so, and they were not necessarily certain, certainly weren't representative of, um, the entire population. Heck, even the mayor and council weren't always right. representative of the people they were serving. So shocking. No, I know. I know. Like when you had most of them saying, we don't want public transit and I'm sitting in the audience as a person who works there, but can't afford to live there. And I'm going, I do. I want it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, very true. So speaking of interesting conversations, um, and also a, a brief little sidebar, uh, Amanda and I both serve on a board, and one of the things we're looking at is what does responsible transparency mean to, to, to sort of uh, piggyback on that? Because, yeah, it's, it's, there's all sorts of sausage. I'm a vegetarian, and there's all sorts of sausage <laughs> that gets made um, in board meetings. And it's like, you know, you want to show the votes and the decisions, but maybe not the sort of the hammer and tongs kind of thing that may may not happen or may, might happen. But one of the things that attracted Amanda and I to your show so much to the podcast, Pansu Politics, is that you agree to disagree with grace and that there's always um, a, a civility and discourse that's backed by data. So these are all things that are pretty unusual. Um, and as... Um, Grant professionals and fundraisers, we often find ourselves in the middle of very difficult conversations at work around things like diversity, leadership, saying no to the wrong grant, or you can't spend those grant funds on things you didn't write for 
the money really isn't yours, et cetera, et cetera. <laughs> and so what makes it um, a, a, a little more fraught um, and what I'd like to ask you about is what advice could you offer for folks having these discussions, especially when most grant professionals are women and most grant professionals are not in leadership positions. Like they're not, Amanda was not on par with the mayor or the city council or the fire and police chiefs or whatever. Um, how can we have best have these conversations and, and get to the right end result? Well, I think knowing what the right end result is from the beginning is important. And sometimes the right end result is not exactly how you want these dollars spent or exactly what you want in the proposal, but it's an investment in the relationship. Hmm. And so being clear about where you are in that relationship and what you're really going for in a particular set of conversations, I think is really important. We also try to remember, you know, if, if Sarah and I are having a discussion about healthcare, it's not the only discussion we'll ever have about healthcare. Um, we, we try to remember it's a long game and we're going to talk about all these things again and we don't have to get in every single point uh, this time. And so kind of knowing when you've accomplished what you can for the moment, I think is really important. The third thing I would say is that I think most people really value the kind of discussions we have where they are true, they are challenging, um, they are plainly stated, and they are stated with an interest in talking again and in keeping that relationship. And I think it's easy. I know that I did this especially early in my career. It's easy when you feel that power imbalance to think that your value comes in affirming the other person's perspective only. And I think when you start to really feel yourself uh, kind of filling out your professional body, it means understanding that your value is in pushing the people around you and in bringing something new and fresh to their analysis and to the table. You you don't have to be a jerk to do that. Um, if you can inhabit kind of your own personality and say, I really hear you, but here's what I think is missing. Or that seems like an important goal to me, and I think we can achieve it if we take a look at this information that we've not paid attention to in the past. You know, just really um, being certain of your ability to add to a discussion, I think, earns you a lot of credibility. I don't know how many times I've had to have that conversation where it's like, can you, where are you trying to get because mm -hmm. I can help you get there, but maybe we can do it without ending up in jail by spending money the wrong way or whatever <laughs> else, right? So sometimes that's the answer is... Threat of jail. Yes. A viable <laughs> negotiating. Well, it's such a good point, too, because you're, you're going to go in with your why for the conversation, mm -hmm. but you have to remember that the other person has a why as well. And sometimes they haven't spent time articulating their why. And so being able to ask those pressing questions of like, what what is your interest here? What are you really, what makes this a success for you, I think helps as well. Nice. And it's, yeah, that's all fabulous advice. Cause these are, I mean, if you work anywhere, whether you're a consultant or working full-time at some place, these are conversations you're going to be having very, very regularly because oh, everybody right. just has the attitude that, well, it's our money and we can do whatever we want with it. And that's usually not the case. <laughs> There's some very specific rules that we have to follow. Yeah. And we don't have to make that personal. We can no. just say like, these are, um, we're on the same team here. I, I yeah. want you to be able to spend this money the way you want to. Mm -hmm. I want us to do it in a way that is not going to bite us later. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Kimberly likes to play the blame the funder game. Like, absolutely. My role. Yeah. They just have this thing that they want to do. I know. Right. <laughs> I don't have to do that so much anymore, but I certainly, yeah, I would certainly invoke the funder. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Well, let's talk about um, how in this day and age, um, when individuals change their mind on a topic, uh, typically one that is controversial, today they're considered wishy-washy. But the reality is, as we continue to grow and learn from others, our views on issues may change as well. Um, Basically, we're talking critical thinking here, which I think is kind of a lost art. Um, So I know you, uh, Beth and Sarah, both talk about so many issues on the podcast um, and I know over time you have probably changed your mind on issues. So what is it taking for you to do that? One of my favorite approaches is just to go back in history because the the further I go back in history on a topic, the more I realize uh, the the depth of which I don't understand, right? Like that there's just a lot out there that I don't, that I didn't know about, that I didn't live through. That is building up the foundation upon which I'm standing. And like, if I don't understand where I'm like, what I'm standing on, that's a problem. And I think that, you know, often the process of doing that and realizing, you know, some of your basic premises are flawed at best or just completely wrong, you know, on the other end of the spectrum can help, can help build enough of that. I mean, it, I mean, it just sort of like, um, sets you off your feet a little bit, right? Like you have to, you have to bend your knees a little bit when things start shaking underneath you. And I think that that flexibility and the realizing like, oh, what I thought was sturdy wasn't, um, is sort of always the first step for me. And that just leads me to like more curiosity and this sort of like, well, if I was wrong about this, what else have I, did I not understand about this particular issue? And, you know, that, and I hope even before I, you know, begin this, this, examination of history, I'm approaching it from just curiosity. It's just so easy to approach every topic with like trying to shore up what you already believe. Uh It's just like, it's almost like our default. Um, It's just like, you know, kind of how our brains work. We have to sort a lot of information. And so we take shortcuts. And one of the shortcuts is uh, I'm right about this. And which ways am I right? As opposed to uh, (laughs) what do I not understand about this particular topic? Because not because I'm wrong or because my values are misplaced or because I have to like take some really um, scary upending idea that like up is down and down is up, but just because like I don't have a monopoly on right and I don't have a, um, a, I don't have complete knowledge on dang near anything and no one else does either. And just admitting that and realizing like that's not something to be afraid of. That's just the reality and approaching it from curiosity that just, that, that helps because if I approach it from, I know I'm right. What else do I, what do I need to like back that up? Um, I'm going to inevitably miss things and inevitably, um, it's not going to lead to a conversation. It's just going to lead to like me talking at the other person, the other person talking back as opposed to us like learning and, and working on each other, which is the goal I try to keep in mind. I'm not always successful at it, but it's definitely what I try to do. I think too, I just wanted to hop in and say for me, when it's looking at history and examining history, I just need to be really careful of the sources that I'm Mm -hmm. going to. Yeah, um, you can do the same thing. Just go out there and find things that prop you up. Yeah. Yeah. Just always considering or considering what I learned in school or or, are these other things that uh, you can sort of take for bedrock until, like you said, the ground starts shaking underneath you. And it's like, oh, that's because the people who wrote these books were probably had their own agenda and lens. And it seems so simple when you finally, to say it out loud, but I think it's something that a lot of people, I will, I'll speak for myself. There are a, a lot of people in my family, I'll go right there, um, 
maybe that's kind of where they are. It's sort of like, well, that's what we were taught, so it has to be right. And so well, sometimes you know, having those conversations about we have new information now. There are new, there's new parts of history that have reopened. There's more research. So, yeah. Well, I just think that, you know, I roll my eyes a lot at the, the emphasis on story. You know, I've joked sort of like stories jump the shark. I'm really tired of hearing about storytelling and the importance of story. And I mean, it just feels like that's, that's everybody's new favorite thing. And by new, I mean the last five years, Mm -hmm. um, favorite thing to emphasize and talk about. And, but the reason it's had such an impact and we keep talking about it is because it's true as much as I'd like, you know, hate to admit it. Like people, it's really not (laughs) about the data or the story or the history or even the reality. It's about the story. And unless you can tell a different story and a better story, or at least just understand the story they're trying to tell, Mm -hmm. you really are going to be at cross purposes. Um, And by they, I mean, sometimes, you know, your own head, like sometimes we (laughs) do that with ourselves, right? Like we have our own story in in our head. And until we can sort of name it and, and, and hold it out in front of us, it's just going to be really hard to get anywhere. Mm. Well, come on, Kimberly. I was just going to say storytelling has definitely had its moment in the sun for grant writing and fundraising as well, Mm. as you probably are well aware. Everywhere. All the places love the storytelling. Yeah. Well, and I can say for me too, a lot of the, of learning new things is just being open to surrounding yourself with people that have different beliefs. Cause it's very easy to surround yourself with just like-minded people. And, you know, it's, that's, it's one of the things I appreciate about, appreciate about y'all show is that you do bring in so many different perspectives just between the two of you and the guests you have. Um, and it's certainly something I appreciate, you know, Kimberly and I do not agree on everything when it comes to politics and all kinds of things. But I also know because I know her so well, know at the core and the heart of her that she is such a kind, loving person that, you know, she's shaped my views because I know she's coming at it from a nice place, which is very different than watching on TV when people are just screaming at each other. And I'm like, yeah, y'all are all crazy. Um, so I think surrounding yourself with people with different views is such a great way to just understand humanity and where we're coming from. So, Oh, I'm just having a moment. Thank you. That was very sweet. You're my pal. (laughs) So I, um, for this next question, I, Beth, I'd like to start with you, but I would love to hear from you both, and um, I'm just going to jump right into it. So you're both big believers in finding the data, as we have uh, have learned and heard throughout the years listening to your podcast. You like to sift through it. You want to use it to help guide your decision-making on so many different issues. In the grant field, obviously, we need data as well. We want to support our need statement, which is sort of the the why we're um, asking for grant funding, then we need want to use it to support why we're putting programs, plans, projects, stuff in place to assist a specific community need. Um, obviously, source material really matters when it comes to data. And I would just love to, to hear some sort of quick down and dirty tips from the two of you of how do you decide what data is worthy of your review? I think it's something that our listeners would really, um, really appreciate. I think a strength of our partnership is that we approach our research quite differently Uh and that Sarah is such a quick processor. She can suck in like a ton of information very, very fast and grab onto what's important about it. And her, she just has a gift for that. I am a slower processor and I have to kind of methodically work my way through point by point. 
And I think having both of those perspectives at the table about an issue is really helpful to staying focused Mm. because left to my own devices, I probably would get way too in the weeds for a lot of our episodes. And I think um, Sarah can run faster than our audience sometimes because she is because she is grabbing onto what's important and then taking that to the next level and the next level and the next level. And so by the time the audience hears, she's three chapters ahead of where they are. And so I think we balance each other nicely in that respect. And I feel like that's just important to research, figuring out kind of what is my tendency and who can balance that tendency in me so that we stay focused on a coherent purpose for this research. That's what really guides me through what data matters. Well, who's the audience Uh, What questions am I trying to answer? And for what purpose am I trying to answer those questions? And once I know those three things and I write them down and I keep looking at them as I get distracted by an article that looks like it would be really compelling, um, if it doesn't fit within that framework, who is this for? Why are we doing it? Um, You know, it, it, it keeps me circling back to like, okay, this is, that's, that's for another time, not now. Mm -hmm. We have what we need for now. Okay. And I think as I, you know, as I do research, the truth is it's less about the data and more about the source to me. So I just have trusted sources that I go back to over and over again. Uh, Some people might disagree with me. I I generally trust government um, offices. I generally trust um, major media outlets. Um, But because I take in so much information uh, quickly, I mean, I think that's a very kind way Beth described it. A, a less kind way would say I just have a really short attention span. Um, and so I think that, you know, for me, I ha- like because I take in a lot, I can start to see the patterns pretty quickly. And if something is way outside the pattern, um, then that's either, you know, a cause for me to dig deeper or for a cause for me to be like, hmm, something's off, you know? So I, I think it's, to it's again, it's just the way you process. And so I have my sources that I, I depend on. I'm also a pretty um, auditory person. So I spend a lot of time research and research, like listening to podcasts because taking it in like that way helps me to take it in and process at the same time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Um, and so, you know, I have the, I have the, the people I like to listen to, but I, I also like podcasts because of the way iTunes searches It'll just pull up random episodes of people I've never heard. And that will like pull me out of depending too much on one perspective um, and making sure that I'm getting like a fuller picture of what's happening. And so I think it's just like it's leaning into your strengths, like Beth said, like um, what, what, how do you learn? How do you best process? Um, and just making sure you're not becoming overly dependent on a certain perspective when you're looking at all this. Or maybe even a single source, right? I oh, mean- yeah, definitely. As for writing grants, I have, and I'm sure Amanda, I know Amanda does too. We have, you know, yes, there's the CDC. Yes, there are all the the big umbrella government agencies, but there are also tons of um, nonprofits, as you know, that and fund makers like grant makers, like the Ford Foundation, and they all have their own research or programming or metadata or other studies they sponsor. And sometimes it can feel a little bewildering, but I can't even say it. It's makes, it's so scary, but it it can really be bewildering to sort of navigate your way through all that. Um, But it sounds like what you're saying is you have sort of, um, if you were a reporter back in the day, you'd have your beat, right? You have certain sources that you visit time and time again, but then you're also looking for outliers and patterns. Yeah. 
and, and, and sort of bringing that all in together so that you're not, you have places that you know most of the time you can rely on, but you also want to be open to new avenues of information or new viewpoints. Is that? Yeah, I think that's definitely a good way to describe it. I mean, and the, the other, the other reality is, you know, I don't know how much you guys like or participate in the Enneagram. I don't know what the Venn diagram I, is. Oh, yes. Rat writers and, and Enneagram. I don't know what Speak that Venn diagram on. is. We did but, a whole episode on that. Oh, <laughs> I mean, I'm, and I'm very like, I'm in the, the gut triad. I'm an Enneagram one. And so part of that pattern isn't driven. You know, like the truth is like the, that, the part of the pattern is driven by my gut, you know, right? So right. The, that I see something and I'm like, okay, that's it. And then um, as I dig deeper, you know, I have to be careful that I'm not just confirming my own biases, but, you know, um, I think I've learned over time to trust that instinct and to trust, like, if I, if I sense a pattern or if I see an outlier, um, that that's important that I, that I sort of chase that feeling. It sounds like maybe there's a part of you that processes faster than the other part of you and you trust the, the, the first one. Yeah, so it's just processing. When things pop up, you're like, okay, I'm good. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just processing in a different way that's hard yeah. to consciously name, for sure. So I'm actually um, an Enneagram One, and Amanda, you are a. I want to say now. No, I want to say you're a peacemaker. Yes. So I think a nine. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, we work well together. <laughs> yeah, you're next to each other. That's how Beth and I am. I'm a one and she's a two. Oh, nice. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, no, we did a whole episode on that. And Amanda actually did her reveal of her um, her number after taking the little the little quiz. I find it enormously helpful. And I think if it's done the right way, I think it can also help you understand how to best work with people who are also self-discovering. I'm just leery of anything where someone else tells you exactly what you are based on like a so that's like little, totally a personality yeah, type. Yeah. That to me that but this what I like about Enneagram so much is that you're making the decision based on things and it's more of a a a personal search rather than some sort of grid where someone's trying to pin you in a certain quadrant. Well and it's mm-hmm. helpful to know that all of those motivators and tendencies are both assets and risks. So true that um So I lean into that strength of being very methodical, but the risk that I have based on my Enneagram type, because I'm a two in the heart triad and I'm a one-to-one subtype, everything about me says, how can, how can I make you care about me? And how can I care about you back? Right. And so my risk is when I approach a project, um, to try to find things that are going to confirm what the people in front of me believe. And so I really work hard at finding information that disproves my bias and I want to get in front of it and embrace it and like fully understand it because I know that I have that strong pull to just make everybody feel good. And I just want to make everything right. And that's very dangerous. <laughs> <laughs> I am familiar with that work style. Just want it to be right. Yeah. <laughs> yes, Amanda. Mm-hmm. Well, <laughs> Um, I want to go back for a second when talking about data and the multiple sources. And first of all, let me just say that, uh, Beth, every time you mention on the show, like I've got data, I'm like the grant nerd in me, my heart just soars. So I love that. (laughs) Um, but the, going back to, you know, you do need multiple sources and looking for things that maybe go against what you believe. Cause 
I'm a, I'm a little concerned about the next generation. If my daughter's anything to to be described as, a, she's 11 years old and is obsessed with TikTok. You know, she all the dances, all the moves. She's got it down. Um, but I don't know how many times she'll say, well, have you heard da, 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 da. And I'm like, well, where'd you hear that? TikTok. I'm like, you do realize not everything on TikTok is accurate, right? It's not, that's not the end all be all, but that's, that's her source because she doesn't watch the news. She doesn't listen to the radio, you know? So that's, well, I'm going to push back on you ever so slightly there. TikTok is not one source. TikTok is a million sources. This is true. This is true. Right. This Every profile true. you see, there's like 15 that disagrees with it. So I think well, that's like, you know, You know, for a time, like I remember my mom was a media specialist before she retired and she would like teach the kids not to use Wikipedia. And I was like, why? And she was like, well, it's not a source. I'm like, right. But it lists all its sources at the bottom of every page. I just think some of that is like it's we see the platforms as one thing and younger generations see them, I would argue correctly, as a million things. Well, and I would, if, if I thought she was actually digging deep, but again, she's 11. So she sees one video and that's, it's the gospel Well, and the truth, problem so, is that but, it is one thing. It is one thing in that it's an algorithm. So if she likes yeah. one thing, it's not like the algorithm is like, let me push you in another direction and develop <laughs> a more fully true. formed opinion. It's going to show her more things <laughs> that she likes. Um, but still, I still think that, you know, overall with these platforms and with the, I like, I watched my own 11 year old take in media. Um mm-hmm. And especially like, you know, YouTube. And I, I just have to catch myself because I think so often I'm talking about his media consumption in a way that he does not experience it. And so it's just hard. Yeah. It's hard generationally to understand like the the different ways that to, to not see. It's exactly what we're doing, like exactly what we're talking about, right? Like mm-hmm. we're mm-hmm. we're watching their media consumptions through the prism of our own narrative. And Ooh. I think that that's, you know, that's another way we have to like catch ourselves and be like, well, wait, what is here that's, that I'm just propping my own belief system up? Listen, I mean, I do it a lot as a parent too. I'm just trying to, (laughs) talking to myself more than you right now. Yeah. (laughs) That Well, no, that's actually, but that's interesting because I never thought about it as as that perspective. Um, So That's actually even a stronger argument, right? It's like there are a million stories in the naked city of TikTok, which is not always naked. I was just making a weird literary reference that I liked it though. Thanks, Kari. (laughs) But but yeah, and, but then there's the algorithm. So there's people's viewpoints. And then there's this algorithm that pulls things up that is not doing things like, how can I help you confront your own bias? Here, try this. That's not really where it goes. I fell asleep watching YouTube videos when I'm not proud, but um, about, <laughs> about people who go in goodwill and, and buy things and resell them. And it was so deeply soothing and amazing. Oh, I would watch that all day long. All the time. Crazy lamp lady. Go on and check her out. It's just, and they were in Kentucky going, to, somebody was in Kentucky going to this like 100 east to west all that to say i woke up watching something completely different and weird and it was like something happened when i wasn't paying attention to the algorithm that it suddenly thought i needed to see these weird conspiracy theory videos that was strange so if it happened to me it can happen to anybody just saying just saying (laughs) But yeah, crazy, crazy lamp lady. It's like a mild sedative. It's just lovely. <laughs> if you need, Kimberly will like get you hooked on these, just these sedative shows. Like I had never watched the Great British Bake Off until Kimberly. And now I'm obsessed because 
I don't even bake. Well, I don't. Even, I will never bake. But they're so kind to each other, and they're so worried about their sponges. Anyway, I know we're super off topic, Amanda. I know you have. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, so let's talk about the two of you. You have such a successful working relationship from hosting two podcasts together. You're working on your second book together. You do speaking engagements. In other words, y'all are together a lot. Um, so how do you keep up with all that you're doing, both while maintaining your working relationship and the friendship that y'all, you know, was clearly, clearly the base of your working together? They don't know. <laughs> well, I don't know who's going first. That was the problem. <laughs> I Amanda, can, I can pick a name. Oh, wait. You, you did know. the last one first, so I'll do this one first. Okay. okay. Um, well, you know, we don't live in the same town, so it's this weird thing where That's we true. are together, but it's virtually most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and some of that, ha- some of the health of our relationship is knowing when to adapt and evolve. So we don't actually have two podcasts anymore. We shut one of our podcasts down because we needed, um, more margin and energy for work in other places. Sure. Um, and the weird thing is, you know, when we started, we weren't really close friends. Um, the friendship has been built through the talking politics in 2015, which sounds bananas, but it's true. Um, and I think, you know, seeing those differences clearly has been a huge part of that. And like realizing that, especially for me, like as an Enneagram one, there's not one right way to be. And, you know, not being in competition with each other, but seeing all the ways that we complement each other and realizing what a strength that is. And, you know, and also, you know, the, the truth is it's easy to see your relationship as a your relationship um, styles as complementary and successful when you have a community of people telling you, listening to your podcast and buying your book and telling you how great you are. Um, <laughs> right. Like that's really good to, to that's like a nice um, uh, like energy and emotional momentum to be like, okay, so this is working. We are doing something right here. Um, and I think that that and our community sort of like, pushing us to, to go further than we thought was, were possible, was possible a lot of the time has been amazing. And, um, you know, but also just another key of the, the, the working relationship and definitely the friendship is like, we're in very similar stages of life. Mm-hmm. Um, we both have little kids really close in age. So our challenges, um, like during the pandemic were shared in a lot of ways. And like, there's just all that, that we can talk about and understand and, um, that's, that's really helpful. So in like some of the big important ways we're very similar and in the ways that really shore up the, the strength of our partnership and our friendship, we're really complimentary. So, um, we're just, I'm just so, I'm so grateful for this relationship every day. I think I, you know, my life would not be the same had Beth answered. And oh, I don't think I want to start a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I agree. I promise this is related. It's going to sound a little um, out of oh, left field have you, for a second. Have you met me today? <laughs> <laughs> I too love the Great British Bake Off. Um, <sighs> whenever people ask me for advice about whether they should stay in a job because they're upset about something, I I always say to them, "Well, like, let's figure out if what you're upset about relates to your values or your preferences, and then let's look at it from the organization side. Is this about?" the company's mission or about somebody's preference. And if it's in that preference space, then that's something to argue about and work through. If it's in the value space, 
the company can't work through it and you can't work in a place that's misaligned with your values. And so I think that rubric helps me understand part of why our working relationship is so successful because Sarah and I often have very different preferences, but we are aligned about the big picture things. We know why we make the podcast. We have very similar attitudes about money, frighteningly similar. We almost never have to talk about money because we're so on the same page about it. And that's really critical if you're going to be in a, in a business together that is providing everyone's livelihoods. And so um, I just feel like we are, our, our differences are complementary because they revolve around this core um, where we are quite similar in the things that matter the most to us. And I think we do a good job, and this is mostly because, because Sarah really pushes us to do this, of sitting down and saying those things in plain words to each other frequently and checking back in. Is this still where we are? How are we feeling about this? Was that fun? It wasn't fun. Let's not do it again. You know, just really being honest about how how things are going, but how they're feeling as they're going to. I love that. That's so important. I love the distinction between values or preferences. It's like getting mad at traffic in Atlanta. You really can't. I mean, you could, but it's not going to change anything. So it's really structure your day around it because not that it's a value but it is a reality. But yeah, just um, getting that distinction is super helpful. Um, well, um, actually, Sarah, could you start us out answering this next question? The, the dreaded, what are you two working on now? That's usually more fit maybe for writers, but you are writers. So maybe you dread that question. And I'm sorry if you do, but I'd appreciate an answer. Well, I mean, you're, you're, you summed it up pretty nicely in your last question. Um, obviously, we have our podcast. We are working right. hard right now on our summer series on infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And then we are working on edits for our second book and preparing for our first live event in a very long time in the fall. Nice. What are you guys going to go do for your live, first live event? We are going to Texas. That's one of Ooh. our favorite places to do live events. Nice. Very good. I would add to that, except that our plates are full with that. We can't mm-hmm. we can't handle anything else right now. <laughs> no, <laughs> no, one's feel... judging, no one's judging. <laughs> no one's Let me just go on the record. That's not that's not that, the well, silence was more like oh. <laughs> trust, we I mean Kimberly and I our show we do an episode every other week and they're pretty evergreen in the fact that we don't have to record them a day or two before because then they'll have lost its you know timeliness yes um and so yeah i can't the fact that y'all do two a week and they're always current and as much data that you guys have to do on the research end of things to know what you're talking about is mind-boggling so the fact that you do anything other than the podcast i'm in awe Um, thank you yes i grew up on a dairy farm and learned early in life that like the cows have to be milked whether you feel like it or not and i feel like that's what the podcast is like whether we feel like it or not it's time to record we got to get this done and turned and out um Mm -hmm. and the, the discipline of it honestly has been really a gift for me yeah. yeah, that's structure, right? I mm-hmm. think, I think, yeah, th- I left to my own devices. I would say, yeah, podcast, what a great idea, or start my own business, what a great idea. But I don't think I would have done it. I would be too busy watching the Great British Bake Off, I think. And, <laughs> but it also makes me think of that the the the. I guess it's a it's a Buddhist, but I I'm, I'm unclear on exactly who said it. But it's like after enlightenment, chop wood, carry water. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same. You just got to get up and do that. Yep. Okay. 
Well, for folks who don't know about Pantsuit Politics and all that you two do, how can, folks, how can they find you, your show and all, y'all? <laughs> uh, you can find Pantsuit Politics Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. And I think you're wrong, but I'm listening a guide to grace-filled political conversations wherever you find books. Our next book will be out in May of 2022. Um, so you can be on the lookout for that. If you go to our website, pantsuitpoliticsshow.com, it's a good place to see all the things where we are on Instagram to sign up for our email newsletter, um, et cetera. So that's a good hub for figuring out where else to connect with us. If you're not following Pantsuit Politics on Instagram, you need to be. Um, let me just tell you that, um, Sarah, your one's about 2021 self trying to re-educate the COVID quarantine girl back in the life. <laughs> oh. I've, I've watched those more than once and they make me giggle. So, oh, thank um, you. So, yes, not only news, but entertainment as well. I promise. <laughs> it's a nice mix. <laughs> we try to contain multitudes everywhere. That's right. <laughs> hey, it works. So, well, thank you both so much for taking time to chat with us today. It was a, definitely a pleasure for both Kimberly and I. Absolutely. Thanks for we, having us. So nice to talk with you. Thank you. Thank you again to our season four sponsor, D.H. Leonard Consulting and Grant Writing Services. We appreciate their support in making grants less stressful. Visit their website, dhleonardconsulting.com, to download their latest free resources today. Hey, y'all, thanks for listening. We wouldn't do it without you, and we couldn't do it without you. If you could, would you leave a review of Fundraising Heyday on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help spread the word? We are honored that you chose to spend time with us, and we would love for this podcast to be not only a part of your professional development lineup, but maybe just something that'll bring a little joy to your day. Thanks again for joining us. We appreciate you and hope you tune in two weeks for our next episode. We're talking about The Road Less Traveled, an annual episode that helps us understand how different grant professionals fall into this crazy career of ours. And fundraisers, too. This is true. This season, we're talking to Simon Scriver, co-founder of the Fundraising Everywhere virtual experience, among many other things. Stay tuned. Tune in to find out. Yeah.